Good evening once again. Good to see you here tonight. I invite you tonight to turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Book of Psalms, chapter 1. Page 617, if you're using the Bible in front of you. We're going to look at a few peaks in the book of Psalms tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, our emotions, our feelings can be so over the map, all over the map. They can be good and positive. We can have good days and then other times we can have bad days where we struggle. And Lord, it it changes, and we're impacted by all kinds of different circumstances in life. And we're so glad to know that you are the rock of our salvation, that you are stable, that you never leave us or forsake us, and you're there for us. You minister to us in every emotion or feeling that we might be experiencing. You care for us. You know us. You wipe away tears. You comfort us when perhaps others don't. You are a good father. We praise you for that tonight. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would bless this time now in your word. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, I had the great blessing when I was growing up to be a part of many different kinds of local churches. My uh, dad was military. He was in the Air Force, so we'd move every three years. And we went to all kinds of different churches. We went to an independent Bible church. Uh, We were a part of a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, several different Baptist churches. We even spent a year in a real small house church. So I've seen all of the different kinds of churches. And then my Dad retired from the military in Albuquerque when I was in about seventh grade, and uh, that's when we came to Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, and we sort of landed in Calvary, Albuquerque, and the Calvary Chapel movement, and that's sort of been my home ever since. But I consider myself incredibly blessed for having the experience at other churches. A lot of those churches that we went to were traditional. You'd walk into the sanctuary and there'd be a bunch of pews. Anybody here ever sat in a pew? And in the back of the pews, they would have different books. There, of course, was the pew Bible. There would also be giving envelopes or little brochures, information about the church. 
And then there was also very often another really big book that looked just like this, just like the Bible, that the congregation would pull out every Sunday and use every Sunday. Now, how many of you know what that book was called? What is it? A hymnal, right. I love the hymnal. Every Sunday, the pastor would say, or the worship leader, congregation stand up, turn to hymn number whatever, right? And we're going to sing stanza one, two, and four. And uh, it was a great tool. Now, of course, we don't need them today because we have PowerPoint and projectors and screens so we can project the words up there. But those hymnals were special. They contained the great hymns of the church. Well, the greatest hymnal in any local church is found in the Bible. And you know what that hymnal is? The book of Psalms. The book of Psalms contains hymns. It contains praise songs. It was the hymnal that the Israelites would use when they went to church, so to speak. When they gathered in the courts of the tabernacle, in their synagogues later, they would sing from the Psalms. In family celebrations, uh, thousands of musicians were used to lead the people in the Psalms. Any and every instrument was permissible. Huge choirs. It was the big popular uh, music genre for the Hebrews. If there were a K-Love back then, you'd hear these psalms on the radio. Well, I want to start looking at these psalms tonight, and I want to give you a little background before we look at a couple. There are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. The psalms are... Divided out into five books. Book one contains Psalm 1 through 41. Book two contains Psalm 42 through 72. Book three, 78 through 89. Book four, 90 through 106. And then book five, uh, 107 all the way through 150. That's how they eventually got collected together in our Old Testament canon. You can see from the diagram that they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, The book of Psalms contains both the longest and the shortest chapters in the Bible. Psalm 119, look at that mammoth. 176 verses in that psalm. And then there's a real little one right there. You can't even read it. It's about the size of this laser pointer. Psalm 117, that has two verses in it. So many lengths, many shapes, many sizes. Um, There were many different authors of these psalms. Um, King David, um, also called the sweet psalmist of Israel, is officially credited with 73 psalms. Asaph. 12, uh, the sons of Korah, 10 psalms. A guy by the name of Ethan has one. 
Another guy by the name of Heman has one. Solomon has two psalms. And even Moses has a psalm in the book of Psalms. Did you know that? Psalm 90. Then there are 50 anonymous psalms, although many also believe that David wrote most of those that are anonymous. So David really is the chief writer. He probably wrote close to 100 of the 150 psalms. These psalms were written over a span of 900 years. From Moses to when the Jews returned to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity under Ezra. So think about that. You got songs that are written through 900 years of history. You know, when we talk about 80s music, what are we talking about? The 1980s, right? They'd have to give more clarification in their uh, genres, their time period. So um, you get a lot of insight into the history of Israel from all of these psalms. Now, though this is an ancient hymn book, it is still one of the most well-loved, well-known, helpful portions of Scripture that you find in all of Scripture. And you know why? Because it connects with our emotions. The book of Psalms, you have emotions, you have feelings. And it literally touches on every possible human emotion that we can experience. It touches on any kind of emotional reaction or response that you might have to any kind of a life circumstance. Uh, Joy, sorrow, triumph, defeat, anger, depression, confidence, anxiety, penitence. All of these kinds of emotions. And so all of us can relate with Psalms. You can take whatever feeling you might have to the book of Psalms and you can find a Psalm that reflects that emotion. John Stott rightly said, whatever our spiritual mood may be, there is sure to be a Psalm which reflects it. Hendrickson said, there are psalms for every occasion in life and for every spiritual condition. And so this is such a wonderful resource for us as Christians. It's been so helpful to Christians throughout the age. The the book of Psalms has been such a helpful to me in my emotions. And it can be a just a tremendous resource to you. Again, whatever you might be feeling, maybe you're angry about something, or maybe you're depressed, or maybe you're confused about something, or maybe you're happy about something. You take that emotion to the book of Psalms, you find a psalm that reflects it. You read through it. You study it. Maybe you cry through it. You sing through it. You pray through it. 
And believe me, it will be medicine to your soul. Because every psalm, and you'll see this is a characteristic of every psalm, whatever emotion you might be feeling, whatever emotion you see reflected in the book of Psalms, you go to a psalm, you find it, and it always ends on a cheerful note. It always ends on a hopeful note. Every psalm always points you to hope in the Lord. So this is one book in the Bible that you really want to get a good grasp of. Now, as I said, we're just going to do a few of the psalms over the next several weeks. We're going to sample them. Just take a few. There are a lot of Bible scholars who have trans or not translated, they've categorized all of the psalms into different genres. So, for instance, these blue ones over here, think of the blues, all right? Those are called lament psalms. There's a lot of psalms that are psalms of lamentation. Those would be great to study when you're feeling blue. There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms that are called royal psalms. There's a genre of psalms that's called the wisdom or the teaching psalms. I've also find a genre that I will call the messianic or prophetic psalms. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take a couple, maybe two or three, from each category. You know, when I go to a Mexican food restaurant, I always order the combo plate. I always order... The sample platter. You know why? Because I like all the Mexican food. I want a taste of everything. I don't want just one thing on my plate. I want a taste of it all. And so that's kind of what we're going to do as we go through the Psalms. Just get a taste of a few and hopefully it will whet your appetite. So that you'll go after more of the psalms that are just like it. Tonight, I want to look at a couple of psalms that you find in the wisdom or teaching category. These are psalms that you would go to and they just give you instruction. They give you a little bit of wisdom. And as it turns out, Psalm chapter 1 belongs to that category. How convenient is that? Almost like it was planned. Let's look at Psalm chapter 1. This is a jewel of a psalm. Blessed so many people over the years. It says in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. 
the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, isn't that a simple psalm? Do you see how absolutely straightforward that psalm is? And imagine that put to music, something that you could sing and remember so easily. That psalm is a clear contrast between the righteous, godly man and the wicked, ungodly man. It's a clear contrast between the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. The first three stanzas speak of the righteous. The last three stanzas speak of the wicked. Let's just look at the righteous first. What do we learn about the righteous from those three verses? Well, I want you to notice that the righteous, godly man will refuse some things in this life. For instance, it says in verse 1, the righteous man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. A righteous, godly man refuses the counsel of the ungodly. Another way to put it, the righteous, godly man refuses the advice of the ungodly. A godly man will not take bad advice from bad people. A godly man will ignore worldly wisdom, worldly counsel. Don't take the counsel of the world. And as you know, we are bombarded by worldly counsel, aren't we? Every single day, we are surrounded by worldly, ungodly counsel. Counsel that wants to influence us. Maybe it's private conversations that you might have with friends who are worldly. They're not believers. Or maybe it might be something that you would read in a magazine or a book or an online article or a blog. Maybe it's a movie that you watch, a TV show that you watch. You know, they're putting out wisdom, aren't they? There's a counsel that comes from Hollywood. It could be counsel that might come from a politician or a professor in a university, a secular leader, a secular psychologist. Now, a lot of folks out there are well-meaning. They want to give you advice. They want to help you. But if it's worldly... Don't take it. Walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
The rich, righteous man refuses that. The righteous man also refuses, as it says in verse 1, to stand in the path of sinners. Now, this would speak of the lifestyle that a sinner leads. You know, people in this world, they live a certain way, don't they? They have actions. They pursue various things. The righteous man will not adopt the lifestyle of the worldly. And then the righteous man refuses to sit in the seat of the whom? The scornful. Now the scornful person is the person who holds nothing sacred. This is the person who is anti-faith. This is the person who mocks God who mocks the idea of truth, makes sport of religion, that kind of person, speaks blasphemous things against the Lord. Obviously, a righteous man will not hang with people like that. They won't sit with them and get all buddy-buddy. Now, I want you to notice the progression there. There's a progression Here you got a person walking, then he stands, then he sits. See, what can happen if you start buying all kinds of worldly wisdom and advice, then pretty soon you'll be living the lifestyle. And after you start living the lifestyle, then you might even become one of the scornful. So just stop it right there at the beginning. Don't take counsel. Don't govern your life on the basis of what the world teaches you. The righteous man refuses that. Instead, the righteous man accepts something else. The righteous man chooses something else. What does he choose? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The righteous man takes his cue from God's word. The righteous man or woman is absolutely committed to the written word of God. Studies God's word. Obeys God's word molds his or her life according to what God's word says. Gets counsel from the word of God. Do you see that? It's just so simple. Godly man or woman shuns all of that worldly advice and embraces the truth of God's word. And what does that result in? so beautiful. A righteous man like that, a godly woman like that, will live an incredibly fruitful life. Verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Isn't that awesome? One Bible commentator puts it like this. 
This man planted by the rivers of water, he has a never-failing supply of nourishment and refreshment. This man brings forth its fruit in its season. He displays the graces of the Spirit, and his words and actions are always timely and appropriate. His leaf shall never wither. His spiritual life is not subject to cyclical changes, but is characterized by a continuous inner renewal. That's the life. That's the fruitful life that you can have. D.L. Moody put it this way. I love it. All the Lord's trees are evergreen. If you belong to God, if you are in his word, if you shun, refuse the worldly advice out there, you will be fruitful to the max in your life. In every way. In who you become as a man and woman or woman. In the way that you are a witness of Christ to others. As a mom, as a dad, husband, wife. It's right here. Oh, and by the way, you'll also be very happy. Verse 1 says, blessed, right, is this man. Another way to translate that would be, oh, how very, very happy is a man who's like this. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to imply that the Christian life is easy. It's not always easy, is it? There are tough things that you can go through. There are difficult paths to walk at times. But let me tell you, the Christian life is the safest life. It is the healthiest life. It is the most satisfying life. It is the most fruitful life. It is the most joyful life. And so much of it depends upon where you get your counsel. Where you get your counsel. Okay, how about the wicked? (laughs) Verse 4 is very, very strong. It says, the ungodly are not so. Double negative in the Hebrew, it could read like this. Not so, the ungodly, not so. The ungodly are not blessed. They're not happy. They may think they've found certain things to satisfy them temporarily in this life, but they're not happy. You're always lacking when you try to find satisfaction from the things of this world. Always. Always leaves you dry. Always leaves you empty. They are not fruitful. Like chaff, they blow away. Now, again, you look at their life and you might think, well, they got a lot going for themselves. But as far as eternal fruit, they're not fruitful. And at the end of this life, they go into judgment. They don't stand in the judgment. They won't have any part in the congregation of the righteous The end of verse 6 says, but the way of the ungodly shall what? Perish. 
Now, why are the ungodly in a state like that? Simply because they refuse the truth of God's word. They refuse to bow and submit to the truth of God's word. Which, by the way, would include the gospel message. You know, a truly blessed man or woman is that man or woman who responds to the gospel message. Who receives Christ as Lord. Who has their sins forgiven. And then embarks on a lifelong journey as a student of God's word. Obeying it. Fruitful to the max. The wicked person. Rejects the gospel message. Rejects truth of God's word. And you read for yourself. Where that ends up. You can't get any more clear cut than that. The righteous and the wicked. Which one do you want to be a part of? Right? By the way, the world has this so backwards. And the world and the enemy puts forth such lies about this. The world says that God and faith and the Bible and all of that stuff, eh, it's so boring. So old-fashioned. The things of this world, the pleasures of this world, the materialism of this world, oh, that's exciting. Oh, that's where it's all at. The world constantly is dangling that before the people's eyes. And many people buy it. They're trapped by it. They're greatly deceived. When I was growing up, when I was in high school, and this is probably dating myself now, but there was a hit on the radio by Billy Joel. Anybody remember Billy Joel? And uh, it was a song that was real catchy. In fact, I can remember singing along with it. Horrified now to actually think about the words of that song. It's a song that's entitled, Only the Good Die Young. And here's one of the verses in it. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. That's the world psalm. That's exactly what the world teaches. I'll take King David's psalm, won't you? Don't believe Billy Joel's psalm. Very, very important psalm. So, Christian, this might be a psalm that you would want to pull out if you're ever tempted to backslide. If you're ever tempted to go back into the world out of which God has delivered you. Go to the psalm like this and just think to yourself, nope, nope, nope. I'm in the right camp. I'll stay right where I'll put in this righteous camp. I'll be true to God. I'll be true to his word. Very, very important psalm. Okay, I want to go to another psalm that has been 
a source of great encouragement to me over the years. God has used this next psalm in my life in many wonderful ways, and it's been a huge help to many others. Also a part of the wisdom and teaching category. Turn all the way over to chapter 73, Psalm 73. Now, notice, you got your Bible there? Psalm 73. What does it say right before Psalm 73? Does it say book 3, right? Psalm 73 through 89. So this would begin the beginning of that third book that all of the different psalms are categorized into. Psalm 73... um, speaks of a tremendous struggle that many Christians go through. A very, very difficult issue that many Christians go through, especially when they're going through tough times and then they compare their lives to others. It's a complaint. This psalm begins with a gripe against the Lord. Asaph, he's the writer of the psalm and he gives tremendous voice to this complaint. Look at verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now understand what he's doing. He starts off and he says, listen, I want to clarify something before I begin complaining. I'm a believer. I love God. And I believe that God is good to Israel. I believe that God is good to the pure of heart. But I've got an issue right now. I'm struggling through something. There's an injustice That I see in this world. And it bugs me. And right now I'm about to stumble. My steps have nearly slipped. Okay. What's his problem? Verse 3. For I was envious of the whom? The boastful. When I saw the prosperity... Of the the wicked. So here's his gripe. He says, you know, I look around society. And I see these boastful people. I see these wicked people. These dirty people. These people that don't give any uh, concern to God. And they're prosperous. They have great prosperity. They have everything they need. They have money. They have big houses. They have fancy cars. They have everything that they could possibly want. They don't have to worry about paying the bills. And yet they're wicked. 
Here I am, a righteous guy. I follow the Lord. I sacrifice my life for the Lord. I try to do what's right. And I struggle. He basically says here, you know, I look at the wicked sometimes and I'm envious of them. A lot of times I wish I could be like the wicked. Look what they get. And he elaborates on this. Verse 4, he says, For there are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walks through the earth. See what he's saying? I look around and I see all these proud, arrogant people. I see violent men. I see people who oppress the poor. And then they scoff about it. Make fun of it. He says, I even know people who speak against heaven. They have their fist in heaven. They speak against God. And you look how good they have it. They don't die young. Their health is strong. Look, they got strong faith or firm, strong physical health. They don't have any troubles. They're not plagued like other men. He struggles with it. Verse 10, he continues, Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there more knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. He says, these are people, these are wicked sinners who even persecute God's people. God's poor people come with a full cup, and these people drain it from them. These people act and live as if there is no God. Or if there is a God, he doesn't care. And Asaph would say, and from what I can see, maybe God doesn't care. Look how these guys get away with it. The ungodly. Always at ease, rich, and always getting richer. And then here comes the really big pity party moment. Watch this. Verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Do you see the, see the pity party? See the, 
I clean my hands. I clean my heart. I'm true to God. I sacrifice for the Lord. I go to church. I read my Bible. I give to the Lord's work. I work hard for the Lord. I'm trying to do things right. I'm trying to obey the Lord. I'm in it. And yet, I'm plagued all the time. Every morning I wake up, I wake up to a bunch of problems. Unpaid bills. Health issues. Problems with people. The car breaks down. I'm just plagued. And then I look at all the wicked people, all the people that couldn't give a rip about God, and there they are at ease. <laughs> He's really jazzed about this one, isn't he? This is the kind of thing that you might think about inside but you wouldn't speak out loud and he even sort of says that in verse 15 he said if I had said out loud I will speak thus I mean this is this is deep this is a huge issue in other words what he's saying here is what's this faith worth what's all the sacrifice worth I should be a wicked person. My life would be so much easier. Okay, you ever been there? I have. There's been a lot of times in life where I've seen injustice, and I think, and it's happened to me many times in my life. I remember way back in high school. I'm a straight A student, I work hard, I'm responsible. I do my homework. My parents don't even have to tell me. I'm a good kid. And I'm driving around a piece of junk. My car can barely make it from point A to point B. I had a buddy who was about as irresponsible as you can get. He's flunking out of class. The only classes that he would able to past would be the ones that he would cheat through. He was disrespectful. He was belligerent. He was all over the map. He would run away from home for weeks. He got to drive the brand new latest sports car. And I would look at this and I would scratch my head and say, look, God, Look how I live, and look what I get. Look how that guy lives, and look how he gets. You ever seen injustice like that? Have that big pity party? I remember um, when we were in the tent years. In uh, 2003, we moved to this property. And... uh, the thought was that we'd be able to get into that building right there next next door, like within a couple months, just fix it up. The city of El Paso said, uh-uh. And we went through four years, 
four years until we were able to build this building and move in here. Four years we met in a tent. Our bathrooms were porta potties. It was rough. Right in the middle of that time, I would drive to church. I'd come down Artcraft here. And uh, on my left, I noticed a building going up overnight. A Hindu temple. That temple went up in six months. I always laugh because it's orange and white. You know which one I'm talking about? Dylan used to think it was going to be a new Whataburger. Boy, (laughs) did he have it wrong. No cows near Hindu temples. (laughs) But I drive to church, and on the left, a Hindu temple went up overnight. And then to my right, a Jehovah Witness Kingdom Hall went up in about six months. And I'm in a tent for four years. Those were tough days. I lived right here in Psalm 73. God, what are, look what we're doing. We're doing the truth here. We're going for it. And every day, driving to church for seven months, I would see progress to the right and to the left. We've been there. It's a tough place to be. Asaph was at that place when he wrote this psalm. But then came a turning point. I love it. Look at verse 17. I was feeling all this way. It was too painful for me until I went into where? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then... I understood their end. I was feeling this way. I was angry. I was upset. But then I went into the sanctuary. I went to church. I went into the temple courts. I went and I met with the Lord. And my perspective changed. God gave me the end game. God revealed to me the big picture. All those wicked, arrogant people that I was envious of. The perspective became different. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. You look at them and you think, oh, they have it so easy. Actually, they're in a very, very tough spot. They're on slippery slope. Everything may be going good right here in this life. But after this life, not so good in the state that they are currently in. And it could happen like that. This life is so temporary. This life is like a dream. And one day you can wake up. And this life is over. It's gone. So he goes into the sanctuary. He meets with God. And he begins to think. 
Maybe they're not so good. (laughs) Maybe I'm in a better spot with all my troubles and my plagues. And look what he says to the Lord. I think this is beautiful. Verse 21, he says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. That's so beautiful to me. He says, God, I'm sorry. I was so foolish to think like that. I was like a beast. I was living like on an earthly plane. I wasn't thinking. And he grieves and he repents. Forgive me, Lord, for thinking like that. Now listen. You should never be envious of the wicked. Amen? Ever. Christian man, Christian woman. You know, things can look great. You know, those people that look like they have it all and yet they don't have any concern for God, they are not satisfied. They may look happy, but that's a show. What happens behind closed doors? How do they really feel? They're not satisfied. The Bible says you can get as much as this world has to offer, and it will leave you unsatisfied. And then consider their end. If they don't know the Lord, at any moment, they could go into judgment. Don't be envious of them. Be grieved. Pray for them. Don't be jealous of them. Pray for them. Pray that God would open their eyes. I love what else he says as he continues. This is so beautiful. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. I love that. Lord, I was so foolish. I was so silly. I was living like a beast. But even then, you didn't leave me. You were with me. You were carrying me. You were walking. You had me by my right hand. You'll meet me right in this emotional mess that I'm in. You'll give me counsel. You'll guide me all my life. And then afterward, you're going to receive me to glory. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what he figures out through this whole thing? God, you're my treasure. You're my reward. How silly of me to think that anything else could replace you. My brother and sister in Christ, do you believe that? Do you realize that you are the richest person on the face of the earth? Because you know God. He's your treasure. He's your reward. 
He'll walk with you through this life. And he'll take you to glory when it's all done. What a beautiful psalm. Now, did you notice how at the beginning of the psalm, he's in a pit? He's confused. He's frustrated. But by the end of the psalm, where's he been lifted? He's been lifted up to a higher plane. He's been given a a better perspective. So this would be a psalm that you'd want to pull out. If you ever find yourself in a place like that. And by the way, again, the same pattern repeats. With any other emotion, you come to a psalm and a lot of times it starts out real dark. Just like you're feeling. Gut honest. But by the end of the psalm, you become encouraged. You've been filled with hope for every single emotion you might ever experience in your life. God will meet you there. Go to him. Don't ever run from God. Always run to him. Now, i got to tell you, Psalm 73 is a very special psalm to me as the pastor of a local church. Especially verse 17. Where did it all start to go right for Asaph? What does it say in verse 17? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. So here I am, I'm beat up. But then I went into the sanctuary. And everything changed. I want to I close with this. I want you to know that this is my sincere heart for this little local church here. My prayer, week after week, year after year, is that this little place right here will be a sanctuary for you. This place will be a sanctuary for the people of God. You know, you're out there all week getting beat up by the world. The enemy's beating you up. You're out there and you're trying to be a good witness in your office or in your school. And man, you're, you're, you're having opposition and, and all of these kinds of things. You know what? When you get to church, when you get to this place, I hope you find sanctuary. I want you to find rest here. I want you to come into the sanctuary and get your whole perspective changed. Refreshment. Nourishment. Meet with God. Get recharged. Have God walk with you through these things. That's my consistent prayer. And I pray that that would continue to be so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being our sanctuary. Lord, you really are. You're our sanctuary. You're our reward. You're our prize. You're our treasure. Lord, I want to pray for this church that it would be a sanctuary for your people. A resting place. A place of refreshment.
Lord, I want to thank you for your word tonight, how powerful it is, how honest it is. Lord, we run to your word. Your word also is a refuge. It's a sanctuary. It's a place where we can go and be built up and encouraged. And I pray that as your people, we would make use of it. Father, please guard us as your people from getting off track, for putting our eyes on things that maybe other people have. Forgive us for being jealous, envious of others. Lord, we are so blessed just to know you. Lord, thank you that we have found happiness and contentment and satisfaction in you. That is your desire to make us as fruitful as we can possibly be. And I pray that we would crave your word. Father, I want to pray for anyone here tonight who doesn't know. You know, there's two camps, the wicked and the righteous. There's no middle ground. One or the other. Which one are you? Have you received the gospel? Have you received Christ? If you've never received Christ, I'd like to lead you in a prayer to receive him right now. He died on the cross for your sins. The Son of God left heaven and came here to die on the cross for your sins. Rose again the third day and your sins can be washed away and you can be put in the family of God. All of your sins can be forgiven. You can become one of the righteous. If you've never done that, I'd like you to just simply pray this prayer right now in the quietness of your heart. Say, Lord, I want in. I want to be in your family. I readily admit tonight, Lord, that I need you. That I am a sinner, that my sins need to be forgiven. And I thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Place me in your family. Put me on your path. Make my life fruitful. Make it count. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.